If you would, let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter number 1. 1 John, chapter number 1. By the end of the summer, when you lay your Bible on the table, it's just going to automatically open to 1 John. We're going to be in it so much. This is week three in our sermon series in this little powerful book. Five chapters, but it is powerful. It is vast, it is wide, it is high in spiritual nutrition, and we want to try to get every drop that we can. Last week, we looked at the first four verses as we considered the true Christ. In order to be a true Christian, you must have faith in the true Christ. And we looked extensively at how if a person does not have faith in the Jesus of the Bible, then that person does not possess true saving faith. The other religions of the world have various belief systems. Some of them include things about Jesus, ideas about Jesus, but they are not the true Jesus. There are those that like to embrace some aspects of Jesus, like his loving nature, and yet want to neglect where he condemns sin and calls people to repent. There are those, even today, that write books and blogs and have podcasts and even preach sermons that teach that Jesus did not call anyone to repent. Yes, he did. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew, for where, the Je- for where Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke chapter 13 and verse 2, we re- record the, uh, the words of the Lord Jesus where he says, do you think that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they have suffered these things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise He goes on to say the same thing again in verse 5. And that repentance goes much deeper than just the mere definition of the word. The definition of the word repent means a change of mind resulting in a change of action. The repentance that the Lord Jesus commands is one of death, really. Repent of sin and a turning, repent of sin and turn toward Christ. And in turning into that, turning toward Christ is a, is, is a manner of death. It's coming to die. Coming to die to this world and its temptation, to its sinful enticements, and it's dying to yourself. It's, it's a death to self. The true Christ that left all of heaven after spending eternity past in fellowship, love, and communion with the Father and the Spirit The true Christ that stepped into time and entered the womb of a virgin to be born of her, thus proving to be truly God and truly man at the same time. The true Christ that lived perfectly for 33 years without the stain of sin upon him. The true Christ that could not be killed by man or the devil, but took upon himself the sin of his elect redeemed people and willingly laid his life down and died. And three days later, victoriously rose again from the death, forever defeating death, hell, and the grave. And one day, he will return. That's the true Christ, as he was and is and is to come, as he is revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. And if a person professes faith in any other Christ but that one, they do not possess saving faith, and they are still in their sins. I told you two weeks ago, that the main verse of this book of 1 John is summed up in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where it says, These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know. Not that you may guess, not that you may wonder or ponder, have sleepless nights about, but that you may know. 
that you have eternal life. The Holy Spirit impressed upon the Apostle John to pen these words in order for true believers to have assurance that they have been truly saved and are kept by the power of God. And he also penned these words to challenge those who were in those churches in which he was writing to. They were in the church, but they were not in Christ. John knew because of the heresy of Gnosticism that was gaining ground and infiltrating those churches that he needed to test the tares that were among the wheat. And the first test is that the Christ test. Do they profess faith in the true Christ? The second test we see today, and this is the one that we're going to think about. Do you walk in the light? And with this being a, a, a Lord's Day, uh, where we, a Lord's Day where we observe the Lord's Supper, I could not think of a more perfect thing for us to consider where we examine ourselves. I pray you've been examining yourself all week long, preparing your heart for worship and to approach the table. We're going to see in just a few moments how we should be doing that continually. So look with me at 1 John chapter 1. I want to begin reading with verse 5, and I want to read all the way down to the first sentence of chapter 2, verse 1. And I want to speak to you upon the light of God and the darkness of sin. The light of God and the darkness of sin. Look with me. 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5. Hear now the word of the true and living God. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Let us pray. Our Father, we have read and heard not man's words but yours, penned by man. But that man was impressed upon by the Holy Spirit of God to pen your very words. So God, help us now in the time that we have together to understand these spiritual words. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to engraft the word of God within us that it becomes one with us. And give us wills to apply. Let us all be drawn to a closer walk with the master through these words. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The dominant word in the paragraph that I just read to you is the word sin. It is the, it, it is the word that appears most frequently in the passage. If my math was right, it appears six times. We are struck by the metaphors of darkness and light, but the word that is clear to us is the word sin. This is a section about sin. By way of introduction, before we dig into this passage... Let me say, pastors are, are shepherds. They're shepherds whose responsibility includes protection. A vital part of our duty is to warn people. A vital part of our duty is to protect the people that we have been entrusted to by God from wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus put it. To protect you from those who would harm you with lies. As we remember in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul said that he didn't stop warning the Ephesians night and day with tears for three years. 
Because he knew that after he left, grievous wolves would come in. Not sparing the flock, meaning that they would come in and just tear it all to pieces. And of their own flock, certain perverse teachers would arise and to lead them astray. Watching and warning is an essential part of ministry. The Apostle Paul told uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Retain or hold fast the, sa- the standard of sound words, sound doctrine, which you've heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That treasure is the gospel. That treasure is truth. Truth that comes from God. Because you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turn away from me. There had been a serious defection from the truth there. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you have a guardianship. You are entrusted with a responsibility to to the truth and to protect it. And then back at the end of 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy uh, verse uh, 20 of chapter 6, he says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly or empty chatter, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. So it is, it is granted, entrusted to all pastors a guardianship. We're protectors of the flock. And that is the attitude in which John writes. John is writing to protect the faithful believers that read this letter. He is protecting them from error by rehearsing and reiterating the truth, going over it and over it and over it. He desires to keep them safe in the truth, the truth about the word of life, the truth about sin and the truth about everything else that he brings up in this epistle. He's acting as a protector, protecting the truth, which will guard his people. As I've said before, John was zealous. You read his life and where he comes up in the Gospels. John had a zeal. He was passionate. John was zealous for true Christians to realize and appreciate what they have in Jesus. John was zealous for the truth. And I can identify with that. I can identify with that greatly. It bothers me. It angers me to no end to see or hear someone supposedly speaking for God, yet promoting something that he calls sin and saying that what they're promoting is ordained of God, been blessed by God, and it is a good thing. That's not truth. It's lies, and it angers me. It angered John then, and it angers all true pastors, true shepherds now. John MacArthur writes, and I agree with this wholeheartedly, he says, of himself, I have no greater joy than to know that you walk in the truth, that the people of God walk in the truth. I am truth-driven. If I'm, I'm not success-driven, I'm not style-driven, I'm truth-driven. That is what controls, compels, and motivates everything that I do. In studying the Bible, never to make a sermon or to make a speech, but always to discern the truth. Jesus said we aren't free until we find the truth, and it is the truth that sets us free. Amen and amen. So with that being said, let's dive into this great portion of truth this morning. Our outline has three points. Three points, and we'll, we'll get to them all, but point three we'll have to probably come back to next week as well. So if you look at the flow of this passage that we read, it goes back and forth. From those who walk in darkness to those who walk in the light. 
So we will put all the verses that go together in each point. Point number one is a standalone. Point number two contained verses six, eight, and ten. Point number three, it contained verses seven, nine, and the first sentence of chapter two, verse one. So look with me. Point number one, look at verse five where we see the bulletin. The bulletin. Look what it says. It says, Then this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The bulletin or the message as John calls it. This is the message that we have heard and declare to you is the message that we have heard from him. And the him is Jesus Christ. John says that the, the message that I have preached and the message that I am writing to you that was preached by other apostles came directly from the source. The source himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. John is saying we didn't get it from anywhere else. We didn't get it from aliens. We didn't get it by taking hallucinogenics to try to expand our mind and then write down what we saw and what we heard. We didn't consult mediums or sorcery or witchcraft, tarot cards or anything else. We didn't go to the pagan temples. We got our information directly from the source, the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say what the bulletin is, what the message is. This is the message that we got from him. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That captures the, the essence of his nature. And it is foundational for the rest of the epistle. It's easy to describe certain aspects of God's divine attributes like God is spirit, meaning that he has no material body. Or that God is love. We see his love perfectly expressed in the cross. The description of God as light is a little more complex. You see it throughout the Bible. God and his glory is often described in terms of light. For example, in Exodus chapter 13, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, when, when, when they are uh, during their exodus, it says, Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. God appeared to them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai after meeting with the Lord and receiving the, the, the Ten Commandments, Moses' face glowed with the reflection of God's light. Psalm 104, uh, beginning in verse 1, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, wrapping yourself with light as a cloak, stretching out the heavens like a curtain. Not only is God light in His essence, but He is the source of our light, the believer's light as well. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The light that the believer has comes from the light that is God Almighty. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, we talk about this often, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on top of that mountain. And while he was on that mountain, Christ pulled back the veil of his humanity for a brief moment, and his full glory was on display. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And then the words of the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said unto them, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
He says again in John chapter 12, verse 45, And he who sees me, the one who sent me, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Will not remain in darkness. The child of God was at one time in darkness, but through the power of the gospel has been transcribed, transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God is the source of true light. He bestows it on the believers in the form of eternal life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was light incarnate. And scripture reveals two fundamental principles that flow from the foundational truth that God is light. First, light light represents the truth of God. The truth of God is embodied in his word. Not my truth, not your truth, not the truth of the culture. Truth is not relative. It is absolute. There is one absolute standard of truth, and it is the word of the living God. Truth is not based on emotion. It's based on the one who created all things. You and I are time bound. We are finite. There are limits to what we can do and limits to what we can know. God, on the other hand, is limitless. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a light, is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. The light and the life of God are inherently connected and characterized by truth. Second, Scripture also links light with virtue and moral conduct. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. I say this beginning, and, I'm, and, and, and we're going to um, talk about it a little more here in just a moment. But if truth and righteousness are not found in one's life, that person, no matter what he or she says, does not possess eternal life. You cannot walk with the Lord and hold hands with the devil. How can two walk together lest they be agreed, says the Scripture? Such a person that does not walk after the footsteps of Jesus and you cannot find truth and righteousness alive and well in their lives, they do not belong to God because in Him is no darkness at all. God is absolutely perfect in truth and in holiness. Now, obviously believers fall short. We fall short of that perfection. But they manifest a desire. They bring forth a desire to strive towards heavenly truth and righteousness. Now, we move to point number two. And John begins to draw a line in the sand between those who are truly in the light and those with those who just only say that they're in the light, but the proof is in the pudding that they are, in fact, not in the light at all. Point number two. We've seen the banner. Now we see the bogus. Verses 6, 8, and 10, we see the bogus. In verses 6, 8, and 10, we see the ones who say one thing, but they do another. We see those that talk out of both sides of their mouth. They profess to know God, yet they walk, they continue to walk in step with the world. Now let's read verses 6, 8, and 10. Look what it says. We'll read, we'll read them together. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now look what it says in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And now verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want you to notice something about these two types of people that John is contrasting. One group talks a big game but does no walking. 
The other does very little talking and a whole lot of walking. People today minimize and redefine sin. With each passing year, sin becomes more and more and more accepted. The lie that is produced by the culture is that society and culture evolve, that they progress or that they get better. When in reality, based on the testimony of Scripture, the culture actually degrades. It gets worse and worse and worse. The victim mentality reigns supreme within our culture, affirming that people are basically good, and whatever may be wrong is not really wrong, but merely a preference of personal freedom. Instead of people accepting responsibility for their behavior, they demand to be accepted as they are. This is something that has been on my mind as we come to the end of May and we approach June. And the celebration that will take place next week that we're going to be, I mean, next month that we'll be bombarded with every time you go to town or every time you turn the television on or get on the Internet. Look what it says again in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Who defines what darkness is? God does. Darkness is the absence of light. So darkness spiritually is the lack or the absence of God. It represents the power of evil, sin, and unbelief that is in the world, all of which lead to eternal death. God says that whatever is opposite of him is darkness. If God calls something darkness, no matter what the culture says, it's darkness. Sinners get called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, not sins. Sinful acts and sinful lifestyles do not get redeemed. Sinners do as they forsake sin as part of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. There are those that will be on high display for the next month in their pastoral robes with sashes of the hijacked rainbow colors, promoting darkness, yet professing that it is light. They reject the truth of the Word of God as if it were something dirty and embrace the lie saying that it's a wonderful truth. In these verses, John divided those who claimed to be in fellowship but rejected the truth into three similar but distinct categories. So if you're taking notes, under point number two, the bogus, there are three subheadings. There are those in darkness, those in deception, and those that defame God. All three of those groups of people either willfully reject or they completely ignore the reality that true believers in sin do not go together. True believers in sin do not go together. Look what it, look what it says again. Verse 6. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. The first category of false professors are made up of those who ignored their, their sin as if it were not a reality to them. They have the, 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 they're oblivious to it. They claim to have fellowship with God and claim to have been saved. However, the claim is meaningless because if you, they continue to walk in darkness. Take note of that word walk. It means your manner of life and conduct. It is in your walk that genuine salvation will either manifest or proof that genuine salvation does not exist will manifest. Your walk proves as to whether or not that profession you make is valid. I mean, I can stand up here all day long and say that I'm the best electrician on this planet. I'm the best electrician that has ever lived. But if you put an electrical issue in front of me, I'm not going to be able to do anything with it. I'm going to be as lost as yesterday's Easter egg. I don't know AC from DC. 
The only thing I know between 110 and 220 is 220 hurts more than 110. And my point is that we can profess to be a lot of things, but do we have the proof to back it up? Is there evidence of that profession in our lives? And the proof to the profession that you have been bought and paid for by the Lord and that you belong to Him and that you have felt and that you have fellowship with Him is that you do not walk in darkness. You do not walk. You do not dwell. You do not live in darkness. Stumble? Yes. Stay there? No. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, but be not, be, be not hearers of the word only, but be doers. But become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For anyone that is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, and he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in what he does. True believers that possess God's life are new creations in Christ made for good works and have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. Therefore, they cannot ignore the existence of personal sin and continue to walk in darkness. The second one, those in deception. Verse 8, Luda says in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So a second group of false professors claim to have no sin. So it's like it escalates. The people that hold to, the, to this position are prouder than those in the first category. And there are those, even to this day, that think that they, they, they've come to repentance and faith in Christ, and they think that they've, they've, they've become so spiritually disciplined and gotten so tight with the Lord that now they no longer sin. That's not true. That is not true. It should be the goal of each and every child of God to get Closer and closer and closer with the Lord. To draw closer to Him today than you did yesterday. To draw closer to Him tomorrow than you did today. But we will never be completely sinless on this side of eternity. We're to follow in the footsteps of Jesus so closely that we have that close relationship with Him. That, close, that we're in the secret place with Him like I preached on several weeks ago. But that process won't be complete. Until we get to heaven. Let me read to you a portion of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 beginning with verse 10. Listen to this. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. That shoots that mentality in the foot right then and there. Dead, right on the spot. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand it. There is none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And then if you skip over to verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. A person, a Christian, saved, washed by the blood of the Lamb, saved for all eternity. But as we'll see in just a moment, that walk, that walk still needs to be cleansed on a regular basis. Then the third, the third in verse 10. Look again what it says. It says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. These are those who defame God. The third group that denies the certainty of sin are ones that not only claim to not sin now, but claim that, hey, we've never sinned. If we, look at it, they're saying they have not sinned. Hey, they're perfect from the get-go. 
Nothing wrong. They got it all figured out. Holy rollers. Got it all figured out. Sealed, sanctified, ready to go. Nothing ever need to confess. That goes completely against the truth of Scripture. That's a ridiculous and really a blasphemous claim that makes God a liar. They deny the teaching that, that from God's Word that all have sinned. And then they deny, secondly, the need of a Savior. If, there's, if, if, if they've not sinned, then what do they need for a substitute? All three of those groups deny the certainty of sin and prove that God's Word, His truth, was not inside of them. They did not possess it. How about you this morning? Are you professing to be in fellowship with Christ yet walking in darkness? Are you professing to walk with the Lord but yet you're secretly holding hands with the devil? Is there a pet sin that you've convinced yourself that, hey, God's going to overlook it and therefore you don't have any need to confess it and get rid of it? God will not overlook any sin. It must be washed away by the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus Christ or it will be paid for all eternity in hell. So we've seen the banner. We've seen the bogus. Point number three, verses seven, nine, and the first sentence of chapter two, verse one, we see the bona fide, the real deal, the real McCoy. They talk the talk and they also walk the walk. As we did with uh, point number two, let's read verses seven and then verse nine and then the first sentence of chapter two, verse one. Let's read them together. Look at this. Listen to how it goes. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. For the person who might be thinking, how do I know if the profession that I have made is a true one or not? First, think back to last week. Is the Christ that you profess belief in the Christ of the Bible? There's that test. And then a person, the, the, the next test is, is the confession test. Every true Christian has come under conviction of their sin. Every true Christian has confessed their sins to God. And listen to this. Not only at the entry point through the narrow gate into the kingdom do we confess our sin, but on an ongoing and continual basis throughout our Christian life. That you have a sensitivity toward the sin in your life. That it bothers you. That it bothers you when you offend God. If the Holy Spirit indwells you and brings painful conviction when, when you do sin, we will still sin as a Christian, only now we can't enjoy it. And, it, and the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and our conscience begins to be like a smoke alarm that goes off and it comes to a point to where we have to stop and confess our sin to God. Or you may be thinking, you know, well, do I have to continue to confess my sin to God if I have been saved by Jesus Christ and I thought that He forgave me of all of my sin when He let me into the kingdom? The answer to that is yes and Yes. Yes, He did forgive you eternally and judiciously of your sin. But now you have a new relationship with God. He's no longer your judge. He is your Father. And you must keep short accounts with your Father. And as you are aware of the sin in your life, you must confess it. You must confess that sin to God. Otherwise, there will be a loss of joy in your life. There will be a loss of spiritual power. There will be a lack of zeal for God. 
So a high mark of a genuine Christian, of a genuine, true, born-again believer is that you confess your sin to God. Let me read a passage that I, I reference very often, John chapter 13, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples the night before he is crucified. John chapter 13, verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples and wiped them with the towel wherewith he was girded. So much is there that we can learn about humility and service. But I want you to get this, what we learned from Simon Peter. Verse 6 says, Then he cometh to uh, Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Dost thou wash my feet? Lord, do you wash my feet? No, I, I should be serving you. Verse 7, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do you know not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. You shouldn't wash my feet. I should be the one washing yours. And then Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So he puts it like that. Well, then we, Verse 9, Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. What, I, the whole thing needs to be clean then, Lord. But listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean. So what does that, what does that tell us? When a person comes to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ and, a, and the Holy Spirit does that work of regeneration within our heart, we are clean. We are clean, we are washed with that hyssop that we talked about at the opening of the service. We are washed white as snow by the blood of Jesus, but still being time-bound and walking around in these fleshly, sin-cursed bodies, our feet, our walk still gets dirty. And so as we happens, as we stumble, as little children of God, confess it. Right then and there on the spot, confess it, repent of it, God, help me not to do it again and move on. That's the mark, one of the marks of a true child of God. It's not, hey, I've been a Christian and I've been saved, but yet I'm still sinning. It's not that you still sin. Do you confess that sin? Does that sin bother you? Do you want to get to a place where you no longer sin? That's the heart and the mindset of a true believer. Some of you, some of you may in fact have never confessed your sin to God. Today would be a good day to do that. You falsely claim to be in fellowship with God either verbally or just by association. Maybe someone brings you to church. Maybe you come with someone, but yet you don't possess true saving faith. Coming to church is very important. I've expressed that many times. But coming to church makes you a Christian about as much as sleeping in a garage makes you a car. You must see yourself as completely and utterly destitute before the God of heaven and earth. And you must see yourself as in complete and total spiritual darkness and in desperate need to be mercifully transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by the blood of the Lord Jesus. So this is what you need to do. Look what it says, verse 9. 
if we confess our sin, if we confess it, then He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is not a sin under heaven that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot wash away. The only sin that cannot be washed away is that those that go to the grave, that die, not being repented of. While a person still has breath within their lungs, they have the opportunity to repent and receive the forgiveness that is only found in Jesus Christ. Then there are some of you that may have not confessed your sin to the Lord in a pretty good while. And you're weighed down with guilt. You got this burden that you're toting around and you just can't figure out what it is. Or, you know, you go through the motions of church stuff, but you don't have any joy. Look what it says again in verse 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful. And He is just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do we need to do? Confess our sin to God. Come clean with Him. Be open and honest with Him and clean that spiritual closet out. And if you do, on the authority of the Scripture, of the text that we just read, forgiveness will be granted, fellowship will be restored, and your walk will be clean. Now let us prepare our hearts to uh, approach the sacred table of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you for those of us that know the sweet taste of salvation. Help us, Lord, to be convicted of our sin. And when, when we are convicted through the power, the gift of the Holy Spirit that resides within us, we confess it right then and there that we keep those short accounts with you because we want to be used of you. We want to be able to walk into heaven and hear you say, well done. God, for those that may be here that don't know you yet as Savior, as Lord of life, arrest them this day with your holiness. Show them your sinfulness in light of eternity. Show them your love through the cross. Help them, Lord. Give them the humility to be able to confess how they've wronged you. Show them your love through Jesus and that you will wash it away. Prepare our hearts and minds now as we prepare to go to your table. All these things we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.